Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Tom Nichols. He is a fascinating author, and he has written numerous things that I've read, I think, in USA Today and other places over time. Right now, we're going to focus on his new book, which I've just been exploring and am fascinated by, called Our Own Worst Enemy. Prior to that, I read, and I recommend to you also to read his book, The Death of Expertise. Tom is a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, and he's also an adjunct professor, I believe, at, a, at the Harvard Extension School. But when I came home from a play last night, by the famous uh, playwright and actress Anna DeVere Smith, which revisited the Rodney King killings. I felt like, in all the despair and so forth that audience felt, like I saw a pathway of healing in the words that I had been reading earlier in the day in Tom Nichols' book. So I'm, Tom, thank you for joining me and thank you for uh, sharing your perspective. Let's start with what inspired this book. What what inspired you? I, you told a wonderful story in the preface about your father at the end, but uh, I, I think I'm just curious. What, what got you off to the launching pad? Uh, well, thanks for um, thanks for having me, Rob. And um, I, I should point out that uh, I'm <clears throat> soon to retire at the War College, but I don't represent the views. Even now, I don't represent the views of the U.S. government or the Navy. Um, I, I, uh, I wrote the book in part because this whole question about democracy had been sort of lurking underneath the death of expertise. Um, I'd written a book that I thought was mostly about America back when I wrote the book, when I wrote the death of expertise. And I said, well, this is mostly a complaint that people aren't listening to experts or taking news seriously or caring about facts. But I found that the more I talked about the book, the inevitable question at the end was always, what does this say about democracy in America? And I came to realize that it, it my answer was always nothing good. Um, and then I started to realize that this was a global phenomenon. Um, the death of expertise, uh, on the one hand, um, you know, it's a kind of a nice brag to be able to say that it was translated into 14 foreign languages. On the other hand, I'm really worried that it seemed to be a global enough problem that it was translated so widely that in developed countries around the world, this is happening. And I thought <clears throat> Americans have, a, have this tendency to think that everything that happens to them um, happened yesterday and they're the only people it ever happened to. So I actually held off on, on writing this book because I, I didn't want to just write another book about, you know, people being mad at Trump voters or people complaining about kids these days or people complaining about other people. I, I, I actually took a little time and I will say during the pandemic, you know, you'd think for a writer, a pandemic, right? Just sit in your room and write. Nobody can bother you. 
Um, I was actually kind of blocked for a while because I, I was really wrestling with why I was writing this book. And the conclusion I came to is that all of the prevailing theories about why people have become so illiberal, that is to say, not conservative or liberal, but rather so hostile to the fundamental values of the rule of law, constitutional order, uh, secular and tolerant government, um, that there was something going on, not just in the United States, but in other countries of the world. And I came to an explanation that I think was counterintuitive, which is that we have become a less virtuous people. Um, the story, Rob, you mentioned at the beginning, my father, my father, who was a depression era, he was born in 1918. Um, I was a late in life baby, as you can tell. Um, my dad was a working guy, high school dropout, um, you know, working class family. Um, my dad was, I'm sorry to say, a bigot, a misogynist, all the baggage that a man born in 1918, you know, carries from a certain generation. He was Archie Bunker with a harder edge. And yet, and yet the thing that <clears throat> I think was different in our house is that there was always a line that you didn't cross about politics. Um, and the story I told for, for folks who thinking about reading the book, my dad finally came down to live near me um, at the end of his life, came down from Massachusetts to where I am here in Rhode Island. And we were watching the 2012 election. Um, we were watching President Obama give a speech. And for all of his bigotry and, you know, racial jokes and all of that stuff, um, my father never talked that way about the president of the United States because you just didn't. You didn't talk that way about the president. And I said, uh, we were watching Obama give a speech, and I said, I think uh, I don't think Romney's going to be able to do this, Dad. I think the president's going to get reelected, you know, because we, we both like Romney. We're both from Massachusetts. We thought he was a good governor. And he said, my father said something that surprised me. He nodded and he said, they're both good men. We'll be fine no matter what happens. We'll be fine no matter who wins. And I thought, you know, if somebody like my dad, who went from being, you know, an FDR Democrat in the 30s and 40s to being a Nixon and Reagan uh, Republican in the 80s and the 70s and the 80s, if my father could sit there and look at, the, at a black president and say, he's a good man, we're going to be fine no matter who wins. We can all do that, but we've lost that. We are no longer that kind of tolerant and virtuous society. We are hopelessly tribal. We are marinated in our own anger and resentment and grievances. And in the book, I I, I come to a counterintuitive conclusion. For, for two or three years, the, the conventional wisdom has been that people are like this because the economy's bad, because you know China took our jobs, because towns have been opioids, towns have been forgotten. Um, I think it's the other way around. I think we and the Brits and the Italians and the Poles and the Turks and everybody else, we've become this way because we've had over 30 years of peace and prosperity and affluence and remarkably high living standards that have produced a real sense of entitlement in us about what we expect from government, what we expect from each other, that are completely unrealistic. And I think the underlying problem with all of this is narcissism. And we've become remarkably narcissistic culture over these past 30 or 40 years. And, um, you know, the, the, and I'll just finish this part of our discussion with this one fact. The most illiberal people 
in all of these countries, including the United States, are not the very poorest people. They're actually middle-class and middle-aged, um, which should tell you something. Um, this is not, you know, p poor people rising up um, in opposition to, the, to, to democracy. Uh, now, there, there are real problems in America and in other countries, income inequality and housing and education and all that stuff. Those are demands for better policy. What I wanted to write about was the problem that you have people my age, your age, who are well-off, middle-aged, middle-class, who have decided not that they don't like policy, but that they have given up on democracy itself, that, they, that what they want is a strong man to rule, to crush other people, to hurt other people. Um, and that, I think, was the thing that really needed explaining. And the, the explanation for it, I think, is very uncomfortable and, and counterintuitive, but very uncomfortable. And I think as more time goes on um, and we see more of this kind of activity from the public, we, I think it turns out to be the right explanation. Well, I think there, uh, I, I know you say very early in the book that if we believe democracies failed, we should first ask ourselves whether we failed the test of democracy. It's an uncomfortable question, but it's the subject of the book. At that inward look, I think it's very important. As you, I think, suggesting, there may be technological change, environmental challenges, obviously recently a pandemic, but do we react? I, I always cite the old Muhammad Ali poem that was given at Harvard. It's according to the Guinness Book of World Record, the shortest poem ever, me, we. And in the pendulum between me and we, how we're reacting, how we're reacting to the stimulus, to the challenges. Like you talked about the middle class. Peter Temin wrote a wonderful book for INET called The Vanishing Middle Class, as though they're fine and they may be better off than they were 30 years ago, but the rate of change they think is negative. A lot of people are citing statistics that since 1989, more than half of the people have a lower standard of living. I don't know precisely whether whether it's what you might call taking the edge off a of luxury or it's really down deep where despair is overwhelming. But they're acting as me's, not as we's, based on what I'm hearing you say. The idea that we're... that. There, that we are measurably worse off since 1989 is just wrong. I mean, it's just false. It's something people believe, um, but um, but it's just wrong. I mean, there is no, I, I mean, you know, in the past few years, um, the people defending that thesis point to um, the um, death rates of white middle-class Americans, that their life expectancy is shorter. But that's actually... Uh, um, limited to about four or five American states. It's not a national uh, phenomenon, and it is primarily the result of drug abuse, alcohol, what political scientists and social scientists now call deaths of despair. Um, but that raises the question about why there is that despair, which again becomes really uncomfortable to look inward to say, um, you know, um, I, one of the people I quote in the books, a very kind of hard-edged writer named Kevin Williamson, right-wing writer, um, I shouldn't say right-wing, he's a conservative writer who has gotten in hot water with the right-wing over some of this. But as Williams, Williamson grew up in West Texas in a pretty impoverished childhood, and he, he asks a very blunt question. Why do we assume that every town lives forever? 
Um, you know, why do we assume that everything stays the same and that the childhood that you remember? I mean, I, I'm from a, a factory town that had a lot of fact. Now, it's actually, I would say, 40 years later, it's probably a better place to live than it was in my childhood. Um, but it went through this complete post-industrial collapse in the 70s and the 80s uh, that was pretty miserable. And, you know, my friends that are that are of my generation, some of my friends really what they really resent is not that they are their standard of living has declined, but that the barbershop in our old neighborhood is now a Spanish church. And they just can't handle that, um, you know, and as I said, well, you know, the building further down from the Spanish church used to be a Greek church um, where, that my grandparents went to. And, you know, the locals weren't real happy about that either. Um, and it, it, it simply is, you know, I, when you ask some of these folks what they want, they what they really tell you is, I want it to be 1965 again, which is easy to say if you're white and middle class and a guy and you're not going to get drafted. Um, you know, so you say, I want it to be 2021, but at 1965 prices with a mom who stays in the house, uh, who can't work. Um, who, you know, has, creates the kind of homey environment I remember that I was, when I was 10 or 15 years old. I, I had a letter from somebody who wrote the book, said, you know, I'm from your hometown, Tom. And um, I, I don't remember it because I, I taught, it's a very autobiographical work as well. There's a lot of, of my life in there. Um, and he said, I remember, he said, I was in, you were in high school in the 70s. He said, I was in high school in the 50s in our same town. And I really liked it. It was a great place. And I said, yes. The period from 1945 to 1960 is fondly remembered by white males of a certain age everywhere. Um, but I think for the people who have nostalgia about that now, I think it's kind of a false nostalgia. Um, and they, you're going back to your point about living standards, Rob. Um, you know, we have brought upon ourselves some of our own destruction in living standards. We, for example, have more, we have a lot of disposable income and we are awash in food. Um, you know, remember when you and I were young, there were movies about how we were all gonna be, you know, Soylent Green, we were all gonna be, you know, um, cannibalizing each other to stay alive because the world would be so uh, overpopulated and starving and horrible. Um, and yet we are less healthy. Why? Because we've taken that disposable income and we plow empty calories into ourselves by eating junk food. Um, and basically, you know, we have become an obese diabetic society because we can afford to be. Um, I, one of the most revealing comments, I didn't put it in the book, but one of the most revealing comments was a foreign military officer who said to me um, years ago, he's from India. And he, he said, um, you know, it's a weird thing to think that someone in his country once said, I want to go to America where poor people are fat, um, not starved. But, you know, and I said, well, everybody's not just poor people. I mean, I'm, a, I'm overweight. Everybody's overweight in America because we can afford to be. Um, we are having health crises that we never had before because we are finally living long enough to have them. Um, you know, my, my dad survived a heart attack in his 50s. My mother survived cancer in her late 50s. 20 or 30 years earlier, they would just have been dead. We would never, they would never have died from the things they died of later. Uh, and people don't think this through. And I understand the, the argument that there are still these problems and therefore we have to have better policy. Where I draw the line is when people say, 
because of these things that make me unhappy. Therefore, the entire constitutional order and the notion of liberal democracy is a failure. And I'm just going to vote for a strong man. Um, I'm going to vote for, for an arsonist. I'm going to vote for people to destroy things and break things. There are a couple of quotes in the book that I point out where people say things like, um, there's a woman who was upset because she had turned, she had voted for uh, President Trump and then turned on him because she had been furloughed out of her job during the government shutdown that happened under Trump. And she said, um, he's not, I, I didn't vote for this. She said, he's not hurting the people he's supposed to be hurting. And I thought, you know, in a democracy, that's where we've gone wrong. That's where we've gone wrong to say, I am voting for people to hurt other people. That we're not voting any longer to say, here's what I want done. Here are the constructive things that I want accomplished. Here are the promises that I want this person to carry out. Here are the projects I want. Here are the things, here are, here's the money I want to save. Here are the things I don't want done. Instead, it's, I'm going to vote for you because you're not that other guy, and I want you to hurt those people. Mm. Well, I will say, I grew up in Detroit, which obviously is a place that's experienced some very painful transition. And in the 2016 election, all of, I, have, I was there for election night because I was running a conference three days later and were preparing. Seven of my friends, all of whom are either JDs, MBAs, CPAs, or MDs, all with graduate education, of that group of seven, six, we're going to vote for Donald Trump. And I said, what do you think you're going to get from this? And they said, well, he came right after he got the nomination to the Detroit Economic Club, like two days after the Republican convention, which I believe was in Cleveland. And he sat down and he said, I'm going to scold the top management of the big three auto companies for losing American jobs. And they said, Trump is the first politician that has told us the system is rigged. And obviously, uh, I don't know that they were saying go hurt somebody else, but they were saying stop hurting us. And they told me. Well, my, that he's going to go. Go ahead. That he's going to go scold. He's going to go scold the top three automakers. Um, you know, I. The first project I ever worked on in politics was the closure of a tire plant in my hometown. It was 4,000 jobs. And to this day, that factory is a big empty hulk in the middle of my, my hometown. But why did it close? Because they made um, bias ply tires. Nobody wanted them anymore. And because American cars weren't selling, because the Japanese were making a better product in 1980. This was 40 years ago. And, you know, well, we, you know, we got screwed by Japanese manufacturing. The government didn't help us. You were making something that nobody wanted to buy anymore. That's what it came down to. And someone else was making a better product. Um, what really astonishes me, and of course, well, there are two things. What really astonishes me is the degree to which Americans who claim to support free trade instantly become protectionists um, when it's their particular Project, bailiwick, yeah. when it's their particular yeah. backyard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other is that, you know, I, I totally understood people. I shouldn't say totally. I, I, I got it that there were people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, in part because the alternative was Hillary Clinton. 
And Trump said a lot of the right things that could sort of, you know, ping that nerve in people in places like Detroit. What I don't understand is four years later, people saying, I don't care that he um, instigated a mob to overrun the U.S. Capitol. And to me, and maybe this is, um, you know, uh, um, this will, I suppose, make some folks mad to hear it. To me, the fact that they never held Trump responsible for anything that happened over the next four years um, tells me that their talk about all of the reasons they gave you, Rob, were nonsense. That what they really wanted to see was somebody to just come in and burn things down and aggravate people and, you know, be kind of a general, you know, agent of chaos. Um, because the right answer was not to come in and... Let me back up for a second and say... It's demonstrably false that Donald Trump's the first person who said this. Mitt Romney was the guy who said, let General Motors go bankrupt. You know, let them pay the price for bad management and for their problems. And people exploded with anger about, you know, well, you've got to save General Motors. You've got to do this. You've got to. Well, which is it? Do you want a president who's going to let General Motors go bankrupt? Do you want Barack Obama to bail out the auto industry like he did? Or do you want Donald Trump to come in and scold them? And and what it really comes down to is that people have become politically incoherent and they just want to vote for things that they think aggravate somebody else. And, and I'll end with one more anecdote from the book. Um, I think it is impossible to find um, a, a kind of rational middle space with a lot of these voters. And the example I use in the book is a woman at the Iowa caucuses. Now, the caucus is a very politically involved thing. These are not just folks off the street, right? Anybody who goes to a caucus is somebody who really pays attention to politics, is very involved, very engaged, wants to be part of this. And, they, and a reporter asked her, well, who's your guy? And she said, well, I really like Pete Buttigieg. And that made, I said, okay, Democratic you know, caucus goer, makes sense. And then she said, but if, I can't, but if Buttigieg doesn't get the nomination, I guess I'll just vote for Trump. Well, I'm sorry. But someone who can go from Pete Buttigieg to Donald Trump is not a voter who makes any sense at all, except as a voter who says, I want something tailored to me and I want politics to be interesting. This is a big part of our problem is that we don't, we are wrestling as an advanced society with boredom and we want politics. There's another guy I quote in the book, a voter in California who said, hey, I don't agree with Donald Trump on a lot of stuff. He's a Hispanic voter in California. And he said, I don't, I, he said, I like Hillary Clinton's politics better than like Donald Trump's. He said, but, you know, he said, I just want to see what's going to happen. It's boring to watch people get along with each other. He said, I want to see what happens when people fight. Well, okay, here, five years later, here we are. Um, I hope it was worth it to, to have television, to have politics become a reality show because we're in a hell of a jam now. Yeah. Well, one of the points I thought you made early in the, uh, in the book, it's very lucid and very succinct. You state there is no coherent revolt among the public, no broad agreement on reform, no evidence of sustained citizen involvement, no sudden movement to candidates who represent real change. Indeed, an actual social awakening with all the turbulence it might bring might even be preferable to the sullen resentfulness of the masses who now see voting primarily as an act of hostility against neighbors. And that, that displacement 
of what you might call emotional gratification from reforming the society, a la Franklin Roosevelt, to spite. To yeah. is it a symptom and, of and despair? Also, no, I think it's a symptom of affluence. It's I want what I want, and I and I I'm not going to risk any of that for real change. I'm not going to you know. I mean, when people are genuinely despairing, they will vote for real change. Um, you know, you saw it in um, 1980, after the after the 70s. Think what you want about Ronald Reagan. But, you know, I, I've had younger students um, say to me, you know, Professor, you voted for Ronald Reagan? And I said, you had to live through the 70s to understand the election of 1980. Um, you had to have lived through the Depression to understand the election of 1933. You had to have lived through the upheaval in America to understand the election of 1968. Um, you know, you, you you cannot just take these elections in isolation. And, um, you know, the election of 2016 was two baby boomer, aging baby boomer, millionaire New York oligarchs from, you know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't even a choice. It was just a matter of which party was going to inflict someone on the other guy that they hated more. And, and my challenge, I keep thinking about the guys you talked about in Detroit, Rob. Uh, my challenge to them would be to say, great, you're that interested in change? Are you voting out all of the incumbents who represent you? Well, not my guy. I mean, I point out in the book, no, the, this, this great revolt that supposedly happened, this big populist uprising, Everybody was reelected. Everybody except on, you know, Trump was, and it was an open election. Trump was going against Clinton. The two most unpopular people in America were running against each other. Um, but everybody else got sent back to Congress. Look at where, look at where we are right now. The, the youngest, um, uh, the, the least tenured member of the congressional leadership is Kevin McCarthy at, at almost 20 years of seniority. Mitch McConnell has been there. I mean, I worked in the Senate 30 years ago and Mitch McConnell was in the Senate. Um, you know, I, I was um, I, I was trying to tote up the ages. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, who's been there for over 30 years. Um, you know, nobody votes out that this is something called, <coughs> excuse me, in political science, this is called Fenno's paradox, named after the political scientist Richard Fenno. So people hate Congress. They hate Congress, but never their own member. They don't want to vote out the bums. They want everyone else to vote out their bums and leave yours where he is. And this is just selfish. I mean, you know, if you're, if that's, I, maybe I'm just unusual. In my life, I have voted, I, I was, I I'm now an independent. I registered as a Republican in 1978. Um, and then in the state house in Boston, I worked um, as a staffer for a, I don't want to say a conservative, but a, a Catholic working class Democrat, which in Massachusetts is like a moderate Republican in some ways. Um, in those days, anyway, 40 years ago, I worked for a moderate Republican in the Senate when I lived in Vermont, I actually voted for Howard Dean for governor because the alternative was a kook at the time. I mean, I, it, you can do this. You don't have to be tribally partisan, but you have to be willing to risk a little bit of your own psychic gratification here 
to say, not going to get everything I want, but I can't vote for somebody who's nuts. Um, that's happened here where I voted a couple of times in Rhode Island elections, you know, the back when I was a Republican, that the Republican Party here ran somebody who was completely crazy. So I voted, you know, for the more responsible person. Other times I voted against long-term incumbents to say, it's time to change, it's time to turn things over. We don't do that anymore. As a country, we, we are riven by something political scientists call negative partisanship, where we simply vote for whoever is not our party. We vote against whoever is not in our party. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you, uh, the, we've got a different, what you might call, way of learning or perceiving the world now. The internet allegedly was put together and people have more direct access and so forth. But you take something like the film Netflix show that I remember last year, The Social Dilemma, which kind of concludes that in order to goose their participation and raise their advertising rates, they study who you are and they teach people on the right only to get, or they feed them only what they want to hear. And people, and, and I remember, I think it was Tristan Harris late in the movie says, we're actually fomenting a civil war here. What do you see of the role of technology in this, in this tension? Um, <clears throat> well, first I still, you know, the name of the book is our own worst enemy. And I still argue that the easiest way not to be poisoned by Facebook is not to get your news from Facebook. I have a Facebook account. Mostly I use it to keep up with people from that I went to high school with in the 70s. That's it. Um, I'm not interested in, I, you know, I, I learned 10 years ago not to post, um, uh, you know, news articles or things like that because it just because it, it does ping those algorithms that then drive people crazy. I think the much bigger problem is the right-wing media complex in this country. I mean, I think Fox News, you know, and I used to be a, Fo I was a young conservative. I used to watch Fox News, but I think Fox News is now the equivalent of a giant inf information operation that we're running against ourselves that, that the Russians could only envy at this point, and we're not even doing it for political reasons, they're doing it for money. I mean, I don't think Car Tucker Carlson really gives a, a rat's ass about 90% of the stuff he says. As, as his former colleague David Frum once said, Tucker likes two things. He likes being on TV and he likes money. Mm -hmm. He's tantalizing people. And, uh... Well, he's staying on TV, and if that's what it takes to stay on TV, then that's what it takes. Um, you know, the, that whole evening lineup has become basically four hours of enraging propaganda. And, and it shows you that people need bigger and bigger hits, almost like a drug of that stuff. Because I have friends now, older people, um, people that I worked with who have since retired, who have told me things like, Fox is too liberal, and now I watch OAN. Because they got bored with it. They got bored with, you know, they had gotten used to that level of kind of... Um, constant anger and they needed a new hit for it they needed a new place to go for it so now they're going to places like newsmax and oan and these are this is why i don't think that regulating i mean i, I do think facebook needs to be broken up it's too big it's a monopoly um, but i don't think that again contravening the constitution and violating the first amendment by trying to regulate facebook or regulate fox or regulate newsmax they're just, they're like fast food restaurants 
that keeps serving us the junk food that we love to eat? And the answer is, turn it off. You know, my challenge to people um, often is to say, look, go a week watching. So I do it regularly. I watch. I will watch Fox for two or three days in a row just to keep up. I'm a political scientist. I care about what's going on in America. I'm a columnist. I write for The Atlantic. I, I'm no longer at USA Today. I now work for The Atlantic. Um, you know, I need to know what other people are watching. Um, when I worked in the Senate, I subscribed. Um, I was a Republican staffer. And I had my own subscriptions to The Nation and Mother Jones because I already knew what my guys thought. I already knew what when I worked for a Republican, I already knew what they thought at National Review or The American Spectator. I didn't need that. I needed to know what the guys across the hall were thinking. Um, so I challenge people, you know, turn it off for a week, watch something else for a week. And we won't do it. We have stovepiped ourselves into um, again, <clears throat> it's the equivalent of eating at the same junk food restaurant every day. And, I, and for anybody watching and thinks that I'm letting people on the left off the hook, let me just say, you do it too. The difference is Fox and right-wing sites on Facebook, they're not just right-wing sites. They are the craziest right-wing sites. You know, Bongino and Shapiro. I mean, these are like not even conservative or right-leaning. I mean, this is like the crazy, you know, steam coming out of the ears, right wing stuff. Um, that that really is driving violence, and it's making people nuts. It's making people, as, as a psychologist friend of mine said, it's making people mildly psychotic, in the sense that they are no longer able to comprehend reality. Um, that and and I and I don't know what the answer for that is. I, my answer with a lot of those folks is to is to decline further discussion with them. When someone says to me, you know, rigged election with uh, Venezuelan voting machines. And I said, look, this conversation is going to demean us both. You're wrong. Somewhere in your heart, you know you're wrong. And I'm not going to have this conversation with you. Because I think it's turned into, I'm, I'm, I'll try and wrap up this part of it, Rob, but I think I think what it's this narcissism has devolved into politics as a as self-actualization and an attention-seeking activity. You know, it really strikes me how often people want to just walk up, you know, and say, hey, look at my hat. Come on, let's fight. Let's argue. Look at my flags on my truck. You know, I I don't need to have I'm I'm paid to have opinions. I literally get paid to write my opinions all day long. And even I don't spend that much time marinated in politics. I don't spend four hours a night watching the news. I don't festoon my truck, you know, my car in in flags and bumper stickers. There, there has to be some room to just have a life that isn't a constant heroic expression of your hatred for other Americans. Well, that, it, it, I think I'm assimilating a sense of which you might call misdirection. Because at one point in the book, you make comments where you say, you know, there are plenty of citizens in the democracies who are angry because they have every right to be angry. And you talk about the narcissism of the elites here, where you say, democratic decline in this view is the result of bad policy choices made by an elite who either by design or incompetence have enriched themselves at the expense of the ordinary citizen. But as you said in other parts of the book, People aren't moaning. They're inflamed by that, 
but they're not directing things towards policy reform and participation. They're directing it in which you might call towards what, what people in sociology call otherness. Find something that's a different tribe and attack them. It's interesting that people on the left have been critical of the book for, because they say, look, um, you know, people are giving up on democracy because of income inequality and poverty and climate change. And I, I always point out to them, but they're not. The, they're not the people that are affected the most by this are not giving up on democracy. You know, there's a real racial component to this. You know, if you say, well, the very poorest people in America are just giving up on democracy. Well, the very poorest people in America are minorities and they're voting. They're engaged. They're, they were one of Joe Biden's you know, biggest constituencies. I'm sorry, th th this notion that this is a, um, you know, for people on the left, this is also, this is almost kind of a watery Marxist explanation of, well, this is, you know, class result of alienation and, you know, the bourgeoisie and the means of production. It's not. This is, I think the author that people, and I, and I mention him in the book, and I think people should reacquaint themselves with this classic. The, the author that I think inspired me to think more about this was Eric Hoffer, who back in 1951 wrote a book called The True Believer about authoritarian mass movements. And he said, the real danger is, is you know, not so much that when people are suffering, it's when they're bored. He said, if someone's trying to start a mass authoritarian movement, that, and I, there's, I quoted him in the book to this effect, that if, for someone trying to lead a movement like this, they should be at least as happy to know that um, <clears throat> people are miserable as they are to find out the thing that would really help them, which is that people are bored out of their minds. And so much of this, if you if you really think about it, this is people, especially on the right, but, the, but there are a lot of people on the left who have fallen prey to this as well. People adopting crusades as a way of making their lives interesting. You know, it's not enough to simply be nice to your kids, walk your dog. You know, again, my, my colleague David Frum, take a walk, order the salmon, get out of the house, you know. But instead, it's I am going to battle, I am going to end racism in America, or I am going to battle a cabal of pedophiles, or I am going to save America from socialism, or I am going to rescue America from climate change and make the seas recede. You know, I mean, it, these are the same people who couldn't begin to tell you who their local state representative is. Couldn't begin to explain the bond issue that has led to their street being dug up to replace their sewer. That's beneath them. That's too petty. That's too minor for them to, to occupy their greatness. Um, you know, if you the idea that you would simply go to a uh, a city council meeting to find out how your tax money is being spent is is beyond them. Um, my mom, back in 19, my mother was also a very poor, grew up very poor, um, ninth grade education, struggled with alcoholism most of her life. And yet when a drug market, I tell this story in the book as well, when, the, when a drug market opened up down the street from our house in the 70s, my mom ran for local city council alderman, ran for alderman in her hometown, and actually knocked off this veteran machine politician who hadn't been doing anything about it, gets on the zoning committee, gets this drug house shut down, but, and then she gets, and then she loses. Like she wasn't really great at the job, 
but she cared enough to start going to these things. And by the time after two years, there was a police substation and the zoning committee had checked the house and the health in inspectors had looked at it. And we managed to get an open air drug market, you know, that was functioning within sight of my living room, you know, um, closed down. You can do this. But today people are like, no, 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 local issues, too petty. Unless, of course, it's to go to a school committee meeting and rage about, you know, vaccines and Nazis and face masks. And, you know, again, this kind of heroic narrative that lets you be the star of your own action movie every week. Politics is, let me tell you, having worked in state, local and federal politics, politics is boring. And it should be. Yeah, drudgery. Like yeah. most days, right? It's supposed to be. I mean, most days, you're just making stuff. You know, the, I still remember my first day on the job working in a state rep's office on in Boston. I was a young intern. I just said, hey, I, I just want to learn about politics. He said, my boss said, I need the help. And my first phone call was to help somebody get into a nursing home, into a state, you know, into, a, into like a veterans hospital. And... That was it. Like that was I, I walked away my first day on the job saying I didn't change the world, but a veteran who needed medical care. We've we've pushed that forward to help that guy get into a nursing home. That that was pretty good day's work for a 19 year old. You know, 20, I was uh, 20. Sorry, he was a 20 year old. You know, my former boss, um, I just talked to him the other day. Um, he, he served for years in Massachusetts politics, and he said, why don't young people understand that state and local politics is where they can have a gigantic impact? Uh, but we don't think about that because we are not civic-minded. It's not heroic enough. It's not enough of a narrative for us to say, yeah, you know, I got involved. I, I um, got, in, got involved in this when I was trying to figure out, you know, how they were funding the local university. I live 40 minutes from, about 45 minutes from the University of Rhode Island. And I said, okay, I'm, that's my tax money. And that's a university and I'm a professor. I'll pay attention to this. You know, I can help, you know, I can talk to people about this, but um, it, um, we, do, we just don't want to do that anymore. It's not, it's not fun. It's not interesting. It doesn't make us feel good. And so instead, we gorge ourselves on the political equivalent of junk food. Well, it sounds to me like if I was trying to de describe this to my children, that narcissistic impulse makes everybody want to be a righteous star. And what is happening in the tumult, which generates fear in our republic, is that when you become a righteous star, you're ad adding fuel to the fire. You're, you're increasing, which I might call the polarity and the hostility. And you have to have, if you're going to be, if you're going to be a righteous, you know, crusader, you have to find enemies. You have to identify somebody as the enemy. Um, you can't just say, like my dad did, to say, you know, I, they're both good men, but I think I prefer Romney to Obama. Instead, you have to say, my guy is on the side of God and the angels, and your guy is Satan, because that gives our lives meaning. That that makes it important. You can't just say, "Yeah, I'm going to vote." And I mean, look at what happened to John McCain when he when when he said to that woman, he said, "No, ma'am, no, ma'am. Barack Obama is a good family man, 
And he's a good man. I just happen to have some serious disagreements with him. People jumped all over McCain. You're not a fighter. You're not tough enough. This guy was tortured by the North Vietnamese and people were calling him a rhino and a, and a, and a weak need, you know, weak sister because he's, he had the audacity to say, my opponent is a good man. I just happen to disagree with him. That, that was an early warning. That was a red light flashing. That's something when, when you take a guy that's been hung by his elbows by the North Vietnamese and tortured for five or six years and say, that guy's not tough enough. Something's wrong with you. That's when you need to look inside. Mm -hmm. Now, that's an interesting observation. Uh, but I, I, you make a reference at one point in the book to, to Abraham Lincoln in the Finding the Better Angels. Uh, I guess the question, and I know the last section of the book really talks about your, as I talk about as a doctor's son, your, your remedies, your prescription. But how do we, you know, how do we get from here to there? I make, remember you had some doubts about being more educated or literate was somehow going to do it because it's, you know, there's an old uh, adage by a poet uh, who goes by the name NQ for in question. And it said, people will always find the information to support what they want to believe. So, the, in other words, the information doesn't come across you like a wave washing across you and change your perspective. You filter out the part that doesn't fuel the fire that's inside of you. So I thought that was interesting. But the question, I guess, I want to get start to explore with you is how, if you were the minister of healing of this republic, how what would be what would be our game plan? You know, I, I, I've said, I've told this story a few times. Um, someone who read an early version of the book proposal said, you know, this is a book that needs to be written. It's a university press book. So of course it had to be reviewed, you know, externally. And someone said, I hope this isn't just going to be a lot of hectoring, moral hectoring. And I said, I don't want it to be moral hectoring either, but I think, I think we need a little more moral hectoring in our lives. Um, <laughs> And so that's part of it. I think one thing we need to do is to just on a personal level, start being the example to other people that we want to, that we want them to emulate and that we want to be ourselves. Um, you know, uh, if you're going out of your way to aggravate other people at Thanksgiving dinner, is that who you really want to be? Do you want to be that uncle at the table? You know, um, I was that guy. Once. I was an angry young man once. I mean, I used to, there were times I used to start these kind of, you know, dinner fights. And I, I there came a point in my life, somewhere in my 40s or 50s, maybe, where I just said, nobody, nobody should be that guy. Um, you know, there's nothing to be that angry about. And, and I had worked in politics long enough, and I guess working in international affairs long enough to say, you know, we, we can do better than this. Um, in the book, I actually suggest three or four things that are not grandiose solutions. I'm tired of books that end with, we must rewrite the constitution and abolish the electoral college. You know, maybe we ought to abolish the electoral college, but it's not gonna happen. It's not a realistic solution. No one's gonna vote for that. It's not gonna happen. It's certainly not gonna happen in the 10 or 15 years that we need to survive to get through this dark place we're in right now. 
And so I suggested things like a summer of military training, not not a draft, not two years, but a summer of six weeks where every kid in America has to go live with every other kid in America and bond with them in a common hatred of their drill sergeant. <laughs> um, you know, to, to just to learn to kind of sleep together in a big building, to eat together in a big building. And six weeks later, you get a certificate that says, if your country ever needs you, um, you're now kind of trained to, to, you know, help us. If your country doesn't ever need you, thank you very much and go on with your lives. And then you have an experience, say, I, because I don't think, I'm tired of these public service proposals that are paying kids to pick up trash by the, by the highway. I'm sorry, that is not, we did lose something when we went to the all, and of course I teach the military all day. We did learn, lose something with the all volunteer force. We did lose something with the notion that, hey, there are times you must serve your country when you don't want to, and it's unpleasant. And there are things you just have to do that, you know, that are not resume builders. No, you don't get to join the, um, you know, the, the intern corps and pick up trash and, you know, use it on your college application. You just have to go do something that sucks that the country needs done. Now, you can, if you want to add to that a, a, a conservation corps or something, fine. But it should be something that is a regimented six weeks or eight weeks, whatever it is, at 18 years old. And then you say, now you're all done. You can all go back to your lives and we're never going to have to see you again. The other thing I suggest, a little more controversial, but we have to enlarge the House of Representatives. Um it's insane. The electoral college problem will solve itself because the electoral college is becoming unrepresentative. Um, we're going to have, if the current demographic trends condition continue, we're going to have 70% of the Senate representing about 30% of the country. So forget the Senate. It's going to stay there as a symbol of federalism and as the upper house that slows deliberation and all of that stuff. Um, enlarge the house. The average congressional district is over 700,000 people. That's insane. Um, you know, that, and I think conservatives in particular should want more contact with the people, should want government to be closer and smaller, um, you know, to, to the election, uh, to the electorate. Um, you could, these are, this is a project that you could, that conservatives and liberals of good faith could agree to do. Um, and finally, I talked about the parties. Um, you know, it's interesting, again, a counterintuitive remedy. People think parties are the problem. I actually think that parties should be stronger rather than weak. Because right now, parties are easily hijacked by anybody who just wants to walk into them and say, I'm running under this banner. They've, be, they've become flags of convenience. Donald Trump is the most obvious case for that. But um, as I point out in the book, you know, Hillary Clinton, whatever you think of Hillary Clinton, she's been a lifelong Democrat. She has served the party, all that stuff that, you know, you, you want in a party loyalist. And she had to fend off a challenge from Bernie Sanders, who has never bothered to join the Democratic Party. That, to me, is crazy. Donald Trump spent a lifetime as a Democrat. And then, um, as Bob Woodward pointed out in his first book, Bannon walks in and says, how can you be a Republican? You're pro-choice. And he says, fine, I'm not pro-choice anymore. Pro-life, but how can you be a Republican? You've donated to all these Democrats. He said, "Fine, I'll donate to Republicans." He, you know, just say, "Okay, uh, I'll pick a flag. I'm picking the red flag, and I'm going to go own it." Um, I, one thing you didn't bring up, Rob, in all this about, and this is related to the point about parties. 
I'm sure there are people watching saying, yes, but what do you do about all the money in politics? Because you can't fight City Hall with that much money. You're, pr you're um, very prescient because that was my next question. Way to go. <laughs> I don't, I actually think money, money can never beat turnout. And, you know, people, there are a lot of people who've learned this lesson the hard way. Hillary Clinton outspent Donald Trump by a lot. Mike Bloomberg showed up with his own checkbook and wrote checks out the wazoo and, and got nowhere. Um, there are plenty of people who have tried to buy their way to prominence in elections, uh, and it, it hasn't worked. So this notion that, well, once there's money... Now, with that said, I always quote uh, Mark Hanna, William McKinley's uh, mentor, who said, there are two things, in the two most important things in politics are money, and I can't remember the other one. Uh, nonetheless, you can, you know, I mean, turnout matters. Um, if you show up and you vote in large numbers, whether you're, you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're going to have an effect. And like I said, Hillary Clinton learned that the hard way, trying to outspend Donald Trump and failed. And then Trump, you know, came in with this giant war chest, spending money left and right um, in 2020. And Joe Biden, who went from bankrupt, practically, you know, we were all writing Biden's epitaph um, in, in the primaries. He was out of money, he had no money, and then he wins South Carolina. And that picks up momentum and he beats Donald Trump. So, you know, I, I would tell people, yes, money is a problem. My answer to the money is transparency. I, 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 I am old school conservative. I think money is speech. I don't think anybody can tell you as an American that you can't buy a billboard, but you have to put your name on it. That's the part I think is important. Transparency. If I'm going to buy a billboard that says, you know, Donald Trump is a bad guy and you shouldn't vote for him. It should have to say at the bottom of it, Tom Nichols of Rhode Island paid for this ad. And not in little tiny print. You should have to know who it was. So don't use money as the excuse for all is lost because there are plenty of examples, including the last two presidential elections, where money did not make yeah. a difference. What I hear on the other side there of that debate is people believe that Essentially, there are two parties, both of which are captured by very high concentrated wealth and corporate power. And so there isn't anything on the agenda to get excited about. Where, Going back to Detroit, 2016, a man used to work in my father's office building, my dad's medical building. And I saw him and I said, what do you think of the upcoming election, which was coming up in a couple of days? He said, Mr. Johnson... When you go to a restaurant and there's nothing on the menu you like, you stay home and you don't eat. And his point was he thought there was both sides were bought and neither side represented yeah, I, I him. I think that's a, I, I, to which I, I've had people say that to me and I've said to them, shame on you. Shame on you. People have died so that you can vote. And there is a difference between candidates and the fact that you don't know what it is just means you haven't read enough newspapers and you haven't bothered to find out what it is. Um, you know, the idea that you could say in 2016, well, there's no difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Yeah, okay, superficially, like I said, a couple of New York millionaires running against each other. But those are two very different Americas you could be voting for. 
Um, and the other thing, and this is where I really bang this gong about turnout, you know, people claim, people complain. They say, well, once we get to the election, I had no choices. Well, you had plenty of choices in a primary, and yet primary voting, um, even in districts, you know, how did how did Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez become a congressperson? She knocked off the guy that was going to be the next um, Speaker of the House. He was slate, um, Crowley was was going to be the next Speaker of the House after Pelosi, but the turnout in her district was like twelve percent. And the people who turned out were her people. His people said, well, primaries, who bothers with primaries? Well, maybe you should have bothered with it. If you're upset about, now, you know, if you're an AOC fan, this worked out great. If you're a Dennis Crowley fan and, and your guy just got knocked out, well, he didn't get knocked out by a Republican. He got knocked out because you didn't bother to show up. Um, Eric Cantor in Virginia, you know, um, he was the number three guy in the GOP leadership. He gets knocked off by a guy named Dave Bratt who immediately goes on to lose that seat to a Democrat two years later. Why? Because Cantor's people said, well, it's a primary. Nobody votes in primaries. He's Eric Cantor. He'll be fine. And Bratt's people showed up for a primary. So when people say, well, the menu doesn't have enough choices on it. Well, when they were putting the menu together, where were you? What were you doing that was so busy that you couldn't vote in a primary? I have actually crossed party lines here in Rhode Island I have registered, um, there was a, um, a, a primary a few years back where the choices were going to be bad. And I wanted to make sure that the Democratic candidate who was likely to win in this state, it was a very blue state, was actually a pretty reasonable candidate. And I went and I changed and I voted in a Democratic primary to try to get that better candidate for the, fine, for the general election. Now, okay, fine, I'm a political scientist. I'm a strategic voter. But you can do that. But you have to actually care enough to show up more than once every four years. And like I said, I, I spent my life studying the Soviet Union. There are people who, who would have, who did um, brave prison and death to be able to vote just once. And here in America, we can vote, you know, every two years, three or four times. It's amazing. And yet we don't do it. You, uh, coming down the home stretch, you create ominous warnings. I think it's called three nightmares. One related to Greece, one related to uh, writings like Huxley and uh, Orwell. What are you trying to teach us in the, in the latter stages? And oh, and, and one of my favorite passage was about three days of the Condor, uh, the old <laughs> uh, movie, which the closing scene there. Well, I, my concern is that, um, and this is where I, um, you know, the, 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 um, the adage that good writers borrow and great writers steal, um, an idea that I borrowed and then stole from Neil Postman, who wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. My concern is that we will be so, that the mass of people will be so inundated with calories and amusements um, that they simply don't bother to care about democracy anymore and that we are ruled by, by default by a very small technocratic elite. And I think that's already happening. 
and, and you know, people who have argued this with me have said, well, the, you, you support the elites taking over and they misunderstand me. I am warning people that the elites are taking over by default because someone has to keep the lights on. Someone has to keep the Wi-Fi going. Someone has to make sure, you know, that the buses run. And, you know, this is not a trains on time fascist argument. It's simply people saying, you know what? We're not political. We don't really care. Um, we're not going to ask the public what it wants. And this um, this goes back to your point about three days of the Condor. At the end of this, the movie, if pe for people who've never seen it, it's about a it's about a CIA conspiracy that almost succeeds. And at the end of it, this CIA, this kind of unrepentant CIA official says, you know, look, he says, we, we play war games because when things finally go wrong, people aren't going to want us to ask them. They're just going to want us to get it for them. And that's what I worry about. I worry about a society that says, listen, I don't care about all that other stuff. Just get it for us. Just get us gasoline or, you know, fuel oil or, you know, pizza or whatever it is, just get it. That's not a democracy anymore. That's a group of people who have made an accommodation that says, as long as you leave me alone and provide me with a basic level of services, I don't really care. And I think that's already happening. The, 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 the worst of those nightmares is what I call the 1984 nightmare, where you have Orwell's proles who care nothing about anything except sports, gambling, drinking, fighting, and the party runs everything else. The kind of Americanized version of that is Three Days of the Condor, where you have a lot of kind of middle and working class people who say, yeah, life's good enough. And as long as you just keep the Wi-Fi on, and as long as I've got a hundred sports channels and internet porn and, you know, Burger King, um, do whatever you want. I don't care. Don't ask me. And, and the final nightmare here is I, I tried to raise, because I'm Greek and because I've been teaching the Peloponnesian War starting over 25 years ago, um, you know, I, I, I tried to reacquaint people with Pericles' funeral oration, where he talks about the virtue of democracy and of a constitution and a love of the democratic city that welcomes all and learns and is open to the world. But then at the end of the book, as I point out, Pericles never lived to see the defeat of Athens because he dies two years into the war from a plague, which I thought during a pandemic was a little too, too on the nose, to be honest with you. We can avert this. It is within our power, but we have to stop making excuses and we have to stop trying to get even with each other and we have to stop, um, you know, gorging ourselves on this kind of mental junk food uh, uh, that that we are to which we have become so addicted, um, but it's it starts within us. I, I just don't think there's an external solution for this, and that's why I called the book our own worst enemy. Well, I'll, I must say, um, as I was reading your book, it brought me to a place that the famous uh, writer, particularly related to Asia, Orville Schell. Uh, he taught me by introducing me to a website called China Heritage. And it's about U.S. and China and a lot of fear of U.S. and China and intractability. Orville had written earlier in his life about how, with a man named John DeBerry, uh, how the woundedness of the Chinese 
from the Opium War and the Japanese invasion was going to clash with the American leadership since World War II in the world system and the tectonic plates of different philosophical systems would lead to misunderstanding and obviously in the context of need for climate change, a lot of fear. And so I said, Orville, what do you do about something like this? And he said, you've got to go to the China Heritage website. There's a famous scholar from Australian National University named Jeremy Barmay, and he writes about the people who he thinks are the members of what he called the Invisible Republic of the Spirit. And that comes from a man named Stefan Zweig, who wrote a book about a man named Roman, Roman Roland. And he says, the invisible republic of the spirit, the universe of fatherhood, has been established among the races and among the nations. Its frontiers are open to all who wish to dwell therein. Its only law is that of brotherhood, or in this case, sisterhood also. It only enemies are hatred and arrogance between nations. Whatever makes his home within his invisible realm becomes a citizen of the world. He is the heir, not of one people, but of all peoples. Henceforth, he is an indweller in all tongues, all countries, and in the universal past and the design of the universal future. And as I listened to that and read that, that notion of what you might call being part of a, a group, being part of together, recognizing your fellow man and woman, I started hearing that coming from you today. I started hearing that where when you said, stay in home because there's money in politics, from my dad's person from his, his office building, you're saying you're not doing your duty. You're only thinking about yourself. When you're using politics for your gain, you're not thinking about your fellow citizen. And you're not a member of that invisible republic of the spirit. In this case, it was about U.S., China, and across nations. Romain Roland wrote more about things in Europe at an earlier time. But if you can't take into your heart the, what you might call the common good, the propensity for misdiagnosis of systems and their dysfunction, I think is, is almost inevitable. And what I enjoyed in both of your books, but particularly this latest one, is how you address these challenges of ultimately having to come back together again. Because if everybody's playing for, in this case, the nation or in the global realm and climate change or whatever, that, that can alleviate your fear. That can help you be more constructive and less self-protective. And so I do think you, you found a really interesting thread about what- It starts what, at home. It starts, right. it starts on the smallest level between you and your neighbors. Yeah. That's where it's gotta be. Yeah. yeah, and I loved your thought about uh, what you might call local politics, because when people know their representative, they feel more connected. There's a wonderful book written by two people, one of his name is Stephanie, I think it's Marvinek, called Trump Democrats, where she and her co-author went and looked around 
at the places that were the most Democratic districts that voted for Donald Trump. And when they, and they were, I believe they're anthropologists or sociologists, they went in and did field work, not big data work. And what they found was in the places that had voted for Trump, people felt too disconnected from their representatives. They felt like it was being done to them, not with them. And, uh, and so I, I, just, I just want to applaud the challenge that you have made in this book. I think it's a Thank really you. good wake-up call, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful that you chose to share it with me and, and with my audience today. Thanks for having me, Rob. I appreciate well, it. We'll look for another chapter not too far down the road, and uh, I, I'll finish by saying at one point I was working with a man named Alex Gibney on a film called Taxi to the Dark Side. And we went to West Point and we went to the Naval Academy and other places. And one of the most interesting things that I learned, because we were talking with uh, JAG officers and others about the role of torture. I used to work on Wall Street for several years. I was partners in hedge funds and so forth. And a bunch of these guys came up and said, we can't have a government with guys like you hedge fund guys running it because you're running it for yourself. And these people who worked in the military didn't see themselves as getting rich or trying to get rich. They saw themselves as having devoted their life to a public purpose. And they were trying to figure out how to reignite that. And while I was working on a movie project that they were in favor of, they... Uh, how do you say, still, still wanted to take a bite out of me because they thought Wall Street played too big a role in Washington. So uh, I don't know if you had already been teaching at, at the Naval Corps College when I visited there, but every experience I've had in interaction with you up in Rhode Island, and you and I had never met before, but uh, I think there's a, there's a hardiness there. There's a a vision about it, what, what it means to be a public servant that I hope we can continue to enlarge and use as an example to spread throughout the nation. So, at any rate, thanks for uh, a vibrant, inspiring conversation. Thank you. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing